Revelation tonight, chapter 17 and 18. And after that, we have four more times. And we're finished with, with the book of Revelation. And the best is still yet to come. And um, as you've noticed, as we've sort of gone through Revelation, we sort of get some information, and then we sort of come back and fill in some more information, come back, fill in some more information. And last time we were together, I said... Guys, I'm not going to mention Babylon here, even though it talks about it, because the next two and a half, or actually three chapters, talks about that. And uh, what we have here in chapter 17 is the destruction of Babylon, but in particular, the religious aspect of Babylon. In chapter 18 is going to be the economic destruction of Babylon. And then chapter 19, we won't get there tonight, will be the military destruction of Babylon. And uh, it's, it's an interesting thing, what's going on with Satan and the Antichrist, the beast, the prophet, um, with those, the religion he created for them to believe in him, and then man, and what man's doing. Man is still a free-willed agent. And uh, it's, it's interesting that Satan thinks he has man checkmated, you know, you have to take the mark. Or you can't buy or sell. You know, you have to worship or I'll put you to death. I mean, he's pretty much tried to make man uh, get in line and follow what he wants him to follow religiously, economically, and militarily. But man ends up despising Satan and his religion. <laughs> Interesting. All religion is of the devil. (laughs) Religious people hated the fact that Jesus wasn't religious. He didn't have the religious education. He didn't wear the religious outfits. He was doing things that only the religious people were supposed to do. And he didn't have the right uniform or credentials. He was just a fisherman from Nazareth. And it really upset them. And they conspired out of jealousy to put him to death because he was teaching things that was going to destroy their little religious system that was benefiting them, causing everybody to praise them. And uh, it was a crooked system, uh, criminally, to to, to rip the people off. It was a hypocritical system. And uh, what Jesus said caused the people's eyes to open up and they hated him for it. Well, interesting enough, at the end, The world hates Satan's religion as well. And they end up going to a final war in Armageddon over this. But when Jesus shows up, they hate Jesus more. And uh, we're going to be seeing that more next week. But uh, we start here tonight in Revelation 17. Here in verse 1, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now, you know, I just want to make a note here that a lot of this stuff is just very, very clear in, in other locations. Um, and so as we go on through here, um, you're just going to keep making note of that. For example, 
uh, the word water there. Look over to verse 18, if you would. In verse 18, it says, and the woman, excuse me, the word water, verse 12. Just as I was coming out, I had a glitch with my notes. Believe it or not, Bill had to retype them out, but it didn't help. Don't you just love it? The devil just does not want us to be successful here tonight, but we are going to be anyway. There it is. Um, Hang on one second. Oh, this is so funny. I had it all written in my Bible, and my eyes started getting blurry, so let me go to my Bible. Yeah, we're going to win this one. There it is, verse 15. It says this. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So we've been seeing him sitting on the seas. For example, the Antichrist there, the beast, excuse me, in in chapter 13, comes out of the sea or the waters. And you say, what's that represent? It represents all the people of the world, every nationality, every language, et cetera, et cetera. And so as we're looking at some of these things, you're showing, oh, this seems, you know, mystical. This seems um, not so clear. And no, it, it is. It's very, very clear. It's right there in the scripture. Um, as I just demonstrated, it was so clear. I had to look at four different sheets of paper. But uh, finally, I opened my Bible, and it was clear. There, there's the moral of the story. Use all the other sheets of paper, but open the Bible. That's where it'll be clear. And, uh, <laughs> but... Um, so here we, we see that there are these many waters. Now, in verse two, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, the inhabitants uh, of the earth, and this is where I had some computer glitches here, um, were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on the scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. So now we have this woman. And, and you say, well, who's the woman? Look there at the very last verse of chapter 17 and verse 18. And the woman whom you saw is that great city. And in this chapter, he's been talking about Babylon. So the woman is her, the great city of Babylon. Interesting, Jerusalem is the number one most mentioned city in all the Bible. But second, and almost the same, is Babylon. Mentioned 287 times in the Bible. Now, when we look at Babylon or Babel or Babylonian Empire, the city of Babylon, there's all kinds of variations, but it's right there on the Euphrates River, right, interesting enough, where Eden, the Garden of Eden was. Today, we, we know the exact location of ancient city of Babylon. It's in Iraq. If you were to look at a map, and you'll see in the middle of the map is the great city today, Baghdad. More people know about that city. You go 50 miles south, going on a map that would be down. On a map, up is always north, down is always south. So you go south, 
50 miles, and it will show you on there, it'll say Nazaria, Iraq. Sort of sounds like Nazareth, huh, uh, in Israel, Nazareth. So maybe you can help remember it. Nazaria, Iraq, which is the ancient site of Babylon. And uh, the past uh, dictator there, Hussein, was trying to rebuild it. He was selling everything and and getting all his money trying to rebuild great Babylon. And he was going to be the emperor. He was, uh, I don't really think insane. I think he was possessed with the spirit of that place. And we're going to learn some interesting things about it. But if you want to go back at the beginning of time, after the flood, Noah and his three boys and their families get off the ark. Noah has a son by the name of Ham, not a very kosher name, but he wasn't a Jew yet. That didn't come till later. Um, but his son Ham had a child by the name of Nimrod. And it says there in chapter 10 that Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. But if you look, it's the way it usually is translated, but if you look, it is understood against the Lord or in rebellion against the Lord. In other words, I don't need you, God. I'm this mighty warrior. I can take care of myself. I don't need you, God. I'm, uh, you know, it's this rebellious attitude. Now, what's interesting, there's a, you can look in the encyclopedia, but there's also a book called uh, Two Babylons, where somebody sort of takes and elaborates and does some research. And I don't know how dependable this book is, but you can also, uh, it's covered in Jeremiah, the queen, um, the queen of heaven, and so forth. And, but, but for sure, historically, we can document that Nimrod... Um, was known to have a wife by the name of Semiramis. And Semiramis had a son by the name of Tammuz. And Tammuz was killed by a wild animal, but on the third day raised from the dead. And the pictures of Semiramis and Tammuz is her holding a baby and they both have a halo around them. It is the exact picture that you'll find in most Catholic churches throughout the world. It's not Mary with Jesus. It's actually, these paintings go way back, thousands of years before Christ, with uh, this queen of heaven talked about, for example, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 7, it talks about not worshiping her or making uh, different things to worship her or so forth. Um, interesting, many of the things that we do around Christmas time are sort of tied in with that as well. And I'm not going to go into it. It's very interesting. It's very interesting. But I, I didn't want to get into that too much except to say that Nimrod, we have that saying, what are you, a Nimrod? Um, <laughs> we, we, we negatively talk about him. That's a good thing. Um, he decided to build a tower and got the people of the world to build a tower and they said it's going to go right into God's living room. And he unified the whole world to build the Tower of Babel and it says in Genesis 11 
that they were going to succeed. Now, I don't know if they're going to build the first spaceship and, you know, go through outer space and, you know, cruise into, you know, I don't think that was the case. I, I really don't know what that means, except God came down, scattered the people by giving them various languages. And when they weren't able to communicate, um, matter of fact, when you get to travel parts of the world and you hear words, there are words that are just incredibly offensive, to one culture, that means kiss in another culture, you know? In one culture, it's, it's like a vulgar term. In another culture, it's like kiss or kind or love or whatever. So you can imagine them when, we, you know, we talk about it when we go into different countries and they're like, yeah, what's your word for this? And you're like, dude, dude, don't say that. It's just vulgar. It's like, yeah, I know, that's the word for kiss. <laughs> and it's like, you can imagine, it's like, hey, you want to kiss? And he's cussing the guy out. It's like, you get this big fight, and you can see how that works. But um, if you would, we go back and sort of look around the beginning of time, after the flood, if you would, was there, the Garden of Eden was in this valley of Babylon between the Tigris and Euphrates River. The Tower of Babel was built there. Later, the Kingdom of Babylon, and of course, we read that in Daniel and how rebellious King Nebuchadnezzar was and ended up becoming a believer. But now we come to the very end of time. (laughs) And interesting, Satan possessing a man, the Antichrist. We've talked about this, the false prophet and the, and the beast and built this creature that comes alive and calling fire to heaven and all these miraculous things. Where does he take the revived Roman Empire? Remember this, he takes the, the ten horns, which is the revived Roman Empire. And out of that, he has the religion, the, the economy and the world military system. But soon as he begins to dominate, he moves the whole thing out of the Roman Empire area, whether it's the western part, Europe, or the eastern part, which is Istanbul, Turkey. He moves it out of wherever, and he moves it to Babylon. Interesting, isn't it? And so, um, this is where he makes his final stand to have the world worship him, militarily control them, um, economically also control them by giving them wealth. Now, there's a, there's a passage that you really need to know. It's in Zechariah chapter 5. I'm going to put it up on the overhead, but you really should turn there. If you can find Matthew, turn just a few pages to the left, okay, and you'll find Zechariah. It's one of the very last books of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. And this is one of these minor prophets, prophets, one of these minor prophets that talks also about the end times and gives us some really important information that helps us, that's needed uh, for the book of Revelation. And in Zechariah 5, verse 5, Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. So I ask, what is it? And he said, it is a basket that is going forth. He also said, this is their resemblance throughout the earth. 
Here is the lead disc, lift it up, and this is the woman sitting inside the basket. Then he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between the earth and the heaven, and so the angel who talked with me, where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me, to build a house for it in the land of Shinar, when it is ready, then the basket will set there on its base." Now, don't get thrown off by the word Shinar. That's interchangeable with the area of Babylon. Okay, Um, example, Daniel chapter one, verse two. It says that uh, Daniel and his buddies were carried by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. He took them down to the land of Shinar. It's just very, it's a very clear thing you'll find in the scripture. And so here, Zechariah is watching this, and he, and he sees this basket, and he's like, what's in there? And he says, this woman. And he says, what is that? And he goes, that represents wickedness. And there's this lead lid put on top, and there's this base built for it. And then there's these other women, I guess, wickedness. Uh, they have wings. They fly it to Babylon, if you would, and they set it there. It's setting there. It's a spiritual thing. And until the right time, and the lid comes off, and wickedness then begins to dominate. Now, now, why do I point this out? Because take a note here, as we go back to, to Revelation chapter 17 here, this is an important point. Because in verse three, so when he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, I saw a woman sitting on the What? beast, which was full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and and ten horns. Where is the woman? She's in control of the beast. (laughs) Now, flipping your Bibles back to Revelation 13, if you would, just a couple of pages back, and just by way of remembrance, we'll just read this quickly so you can remember In Revelation chapter 13, verse one, that I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a, there it is, a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and 10 horns. So the beast has seven and 10 horns. This woman has seven heads and 10 horns. It's describing this individual, but in various uh, dimensions. And on his horns, seven crowns, and on his heads, blasphemous names. Very similar. And the beast, which I saw, was like a leopard, his feet like the feet of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion. This is a picture out of Daniel, the the revived Roman Empire, this wicked empire. Also, it would become the Babylonian Empire. This dragon gave him his power into his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it had Uh, been mortally wounded, and the deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, Satan. We know later it says the dragon is Satan. Remember it says plainly. And he gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Boy, nobody is like the beast. 
Who is able to make war with him? Nobody can defeat him. And as it was the mouth speaking great things and blasphemous things, and he was given authority and continued for 42 months, three and a half years, and he opened his mouth in the blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, those who dwell in heaven. It was granted him to make war with the saints, overcome them, and authority was given him for every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Now, we have the Antichrist. We have the false prophet. We have the beast. All of these are Satan possessing these various images and various um, people. And now, all of a sudden, in control of it all is wickedness. We're going to see here at a point that Things get out of Satan's control. People aren't worshiping him and he starts slaughtering the earth. People aren't submitting to him. They all gather together to have war against him. We're gonna see that next time in chapter 19 to to fight again as it comes to the battle of Armageddon. But ultimately, (laughs) wickedness itself begins to control all of mankind and the earth and even Satan himself. And again, it's within the bonds of, of, of the revived Roman Empire, the 10 hordes, three come out, seven uh, kingdoms take over, but there is 10 and, and the control. We've talked about this in detail. And, um, and in verse four here, and the woman was arrayed in, notice, <laughs> interesting, purple, the color of royalty, scarlet, red, I think representing the blood of the saints, adorned with gold, precious pearls, having her hand of golden cup full. So let's just stop. They're looking at, we know it's wickedness now. This woman, this city of Babylon, which represents just, it's a city where Wickedness just comes and permeates and controls. Now, remember, guys, we had talked about this in Daniel 10 when Daniel's waiting for the prayer request and, and, and finally Gabriel comes through and says, look, I gotta go back. Michael, help me get away, but I gotta hurry and get back. The, the princes of Persia. Persia, yes, was a physical kingdom, but it was a spiritual kingdom. And that spiritual kingdom was fighting. And, and, and what I'm saying here is there's a, the spiritual entity itself and it's in the city. It, it's a spirit. It's, it's a something. Babylon sort of represents the spirit of this age. It says the, the, one of the descriptions of Satan is he's the spirit of this age, the God of this age, the prince uh, of this age, the principality of the power of the air, the God of this world, this, this spirit of the age. We're in a spirit. The Bible tells us the last days would be a spirit of Sodom and Gomorrah, a spirit of just homosexuality permeating the world. And you see it. It's just everywhere. It's ridiculous. They'll have it on TV shows that don't even make sense why they would have it. But all of a sudden, two guys start making out or two girls start, it's just disgusting. 
And it, you can't run from it. And good is evil, evil is good. They're, the spirit of this age is homosexuality is good. It's wonderful. It's moral. It's pure. It should be celebrated. And anybody who doesn't agree with that, you're evil. That's, that's the spirit of this age. If you would, I, I would say that's the spirit of Babylon. And it's going to be brought into one location, this giant kingdom, not this kind of tower of Babel that's going to go into the very heavens itself, but it's going to be a, a city. And this city's going to be kingly. It's going to just be decked out in gold and pearls. And it's, it's just going to be, it's going to make you in awe. It's going to look supernatural. It's so illustrious, this city. But yet notice as they're using their gold cup in verse four, what is that cup full of? Abominations and what? Filthiness of her fornication. So picture if you would, this amazing, you know, I think of a, like a hotel room, this conference room, this thing that's decked out, chandeliers and wood and just amazing, you know, just incredible. And there you see this woman just decked out, this dress, just unbelievable and gold and jewels and a crown and this golden cup and you walk up there and, and you're going, wow, this is amazing, this is and you smell the cup and it smells like poop. It smells like somebody just dipped that in the worst sewage you've ever smelled in your life. And they're just drinking it going, oh, this is so wonderful. And what is it? It's the fornication. As we study through the Old Testament, what is it? The fornication's against God. It's when they should be worshiping and honoring God, but yet they have another spouse and that spouse is not the one that loves you that that you should be faithful to and it's putrid and it's ugly and it's gross and it's disgusting but those who are living in it think it's the most wonderful thing in the world you know i i still don't get it you know, we're all told that gold, oh, boy, if you had a pile of that. And, you know, people will blow up mountains and climb in caves and people will die and take it out in little tiny pieces of dust and little tiny rocks. And, you know, people will literally spend their entire lifetime, they'll, they'll, they'll just wreck their bodies trying to get gold so they can get paid some money and get a piece of that. And then they take this gold and they melt it down and they put it into these bars. And then when they get a bunch of bars in it, what, what do we do? We build Fort Knox, which is a place underground. And we put it on giant stacks and we put it back in the ground. Isn't that nuts? Hey, go up to Fort Knox. Hey, can I see some of that gold? Get away, I'll shoot you. That's our bars of gold we have in the ground. Was it really worth that? 
like all these thousands of people getting maimed and dying so you could take all this dust and rocks, put it into a square to re-put it back in the ground with some stamp on it. Isn't it, isn't it just stupid? And then people tell you about diamonds. Oh, those are the greatest. They're clear, guys. You say, man, that, it, it's just so simple. You could, you could make it. You could just make a little clear. You can, right? What is it called? Cubic sarconium. And, and you can't really tell the difference. I've embarrassed myself going, ah, it's not a really a diamond. That's that. Pla-. You could tell. I didn't know you could. I'm like, oh my goodness. I was just joking. I, I, it made him feel bad. And it's like, oh, that's got to be a real diamond. Why, don't, don't make that mistake again. It's like, uh, you know, asking somebody, oh, when's the baby due? I'm not pregnant. No, oh, don't do that. I, I've done that too. I, oh, I just, oh, there's certain things you just don't recover from. And uh, but anyway, um, the <laughs> in my youth, in my youth. Um, but uh, again, we're told that diamonds are the ultimate. You got to have them, and they're worth lots of money. You know, it, it's we're, we're just it's the spirit of this age. We're letting it suck us in and and going with it, guys. What about something that's green? or yellow, or red, or purple. Isn't that prettier? And it's a whole lot cheaper. Oh, no, 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 no. This clear one's worth a lot more money than this red one. Why? It's because the De Beers family (laughs) in the early 20s set out a campaign to say you are not really married unless you have a diamond. And everybody bought into it. It was the best uh, marketing campaign ever. But we're told these things and we're believing them and we're, we're getting sucked into it. And, and, and guys, it's, to me, it's, it's gross. When I see just things that are just people, you know, wearing just gobs of jewelry and, and you just know they spent thousands of dollars on this dress and, and uh, or suits or whatever. And it, it just... To me, it just, it just does not rejoice my heart at all. It's not like, wow, man, if I had money, I'd make a giant golden belt buckle like that. If I were wealthy, that's, how, that's what I would do. I, if I were wealthy, I would have less than I have now. I, I want less. I would pay people lots of money to figure out how I could have less. I've talked to people that are wealthy and they own nothing. <laughs> they rent their house. They don't even own their car. Because they'll just get sued. If they own something, they'll get sued. They'll spend their days in court. They're wealthy enough. They don't have to own anything. It, it's, it's just a trap. And here we see Satan telling the people of the world, boy, this is what you want. A golden cup to drink out of and purple and and, and, and we really realize the very source of it here. That it comes together in this tribulation period in a way that's never been seen on planet Earth. And it's wickedness, guys. And it's right from the pit of hell. And it doesn't, it doesn't fulfill you. And notice in verse five, on her forehead was named written, Mystery Babylon the Great the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with what? 
the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs. And and of Jesus, the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. And so when he's looking at this, he's just, it's just such a contradiction. Such success. Such wealth. Such beauty. Such glory. But yet, success and beauty and power and wealth and glory is by those who hate Jesus and everybody who loves to worship Jesus. They hate them. But the angel said to me in verse 7, Why do you marvel? I will tell you a mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which was the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. So again, we we saw there in chapter 13 how, again, uh, Satan possessed, the Antichrist was mortally wounded, supposedly raised from the dead, uh, and so forth, with these lying signs and wonders. Interesting, it says of Jesus, who was and is and is to come. So again, it's Satan trying to mimic everything of Jesus, but he is still going to perdition, which means loss, a place of emptiness. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is and yet is. So all of these people that didn't receive Christ, that weren't followers of Jesus, when they see him in perdition and a place of loss, and they are gonna marvel that one looks so successful, so wealthy, so in control of the whole world, has absolutely nothing for eternity. And in verse nine, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and the others are not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. Then the beast that was and is and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is coming to perdition. Now in verse 9 through 11 is probably the toughest verses in all of Revelation. And, and people have speculated so much. The only thing we know for sure is in verse 11, the eighth, it's the Antichrist. So whoever this eighth king is, he is the Antichrist. And it's interesting that uh, in time, people have uh, just so dogmatically come up with, with certainties, you know, since this is the revived Roman Empire, it must be speaking of the Roman Caesars. And so the first is Julius Caesar, the Tiberius Caesar, Caligula, Claudius, Nero. And the one at the time John was writing was uh, Domitian. And then later, the Antichrist would rise up and be the seventh. But then when the Antichrist moves his whole kingdom to Babylon, he would also be the eighth. He would be seven and the eighth. Then the other ones say, no, 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 the king, even though it says seven kings, it's really referring to seven kingdoms because it was earlier. And so we look at the, the 
kingdoms that sort of ruled the known world of the time. The first would be Egypt. And these things that I'm talking about, the Roman Caesars or these uh, world-ruling kingdoms, so to speak, uh, of their time. It's all in the cyclopedia. You can look it up. But the first, they say, would be Egypt. Second would be Assyria. Remember, uh, Jonah went down to Nineveh, to the Assyrian. Uh, Then third would be Babylon. Fourth would be the Medo-Persian Empire. The fifth would be the Greek Empire. The sixth would be the Roman Empire. The seventh would be the revived Roman Empire. And then when that Roman Empire moves to Babylon, then it would become the eighth uh, empire. You know, I think we just got to be so, oh, so careful to, to speculate like that. Now, there's a whole nother group, guys, and you can find books upon books written. And they take, in verse 9, the seven heads are the seven hills on which the woman sits. Now, in Rome, the city of Rome is built on the seven hills. And so, the woman is that vile, abominable Catholic church, is what they say. Well, let me just point out, first of all, in Greek, there is a word for hill, and there's a different word for mountain. And here in verse 9, it is the Greek word for mountain. It's not a hill. And there aren't seven mountains on which Rome is built. So it sort of takes that whole concept out of the way. But there is a group of people, and again, if you go through history, uh, the Catholic Church at, at times just murdered thousands of people for not being Catholic. And um, of course, that brought us with Martin Luther and the Reformation period. But before that, throughout the world, it was a brutal, brutal place ran by the Roman church. So it was a great hatred throughout the centuries uh, for the, the, the Roman Catholic church and all the evil that they did. And, and of course, you can go back and look at the, the Vatican and all the priests were married and all the whorehouses and all the stealing. And it was no doubt a the, the big percentage Uh, of the Catholic history uh, to present day, according to the Pope that just resigned, um, is a very corrupt system. But the Antichrist system covers far greater than the Catholic Church, far greater than anything like that. It is, it, it, at first, we, we know from Daniel chapter 11 when we look at the story of Antiochus of Epiphanes, is that he first brings in the religion and then he changes it and then he eventually replaces it. So I think the Antichrist is going to first embrace all the religions of the world and somehow try to make it look like, oh, you're a Hindu, that's what I am. Oh, you're a Muslim, that's what I am. You're a Christian, that's what I am. And and he's going to try to embrace them and, and then he eventually starts having all arrows pointing towards himself, that whatever your, you know, Buddha or your Messiah is, it's me. And he just corrupts um, whatever the religion is, even if it's a false religion that he established, it's gonna make it point ultimately to him as the Messiah of the world, where it's the Jewish Messiah or the Christian Messiah or whatever. He, he's gonna corrupt it in that way. And so again, I, I think it's uh, not a good idea to say it's the Roman Catholic Church. Well, what's the best way to handle scriptures like this? Guys, a very important verse in prophecy. I've quoted it before, but I'm gonna look at it again tonight. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 to 21, 
And so when we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as the light that shines in a dark place. And here verse 9 through 11 is a dark place, but the light's shining the closer we get. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. So it's a poetic way of saying until it's just clear. You know, again, I, I talked about this where uh, the movies, when I was a kid growing up, the Mark 666 was a big, giant black magic marker on people's heads, 666, you know. And then, you know, I remember talking about the computers. Oh, what's a computer? Oh, man, there's this computer, and it's like 50 stories deep. It's a million square feet, and it's a computer. And it's so powerful, it has everybody's name in it in the world. Whoa. How could one computer even that big have? You know, of course, now our cell phones can handle that kind of information, right? But the whole idea of, of a mark and, and every, you know, tracking you down wherever you're at in the world, the technology has grown. If you would, the, the dawn, uh, the morning star is shining on that particular area of a mark on the back of your hand or your forehead and tracking you down uh, wherever you're at in the world and all these kind of things. It's, it's becoming clear. I think we'd be wrong to say, oh, it's a computer chip. There he is. That's what the mark of the beast is. It's a computer chip. I think, you you know, it's, and I've had people who, who need to have computer chips for whatever reason. I can't go into it, but they, they come and going, Brian, am I, am, I, am I accidentally, you know, surrendering my life to Satan by having to get this computer chip? And I'm like, no, that's ridiculous. The Bible doesn't say, and the mark of the beast is a computer chip. Uh, GPS under the skin. That's what it is. It doesn't say that. When the day comes when you are taking that mark, you are taking it in worship to Satan. But anyway, in verse 20 here of of 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 20, it says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private, translated here, interpretation. That word in the Greek is origin. That no prophecy is of any individual's origination personally. So in other words, you know, that prophecy means that to you, that's wonderful. This prophecy means this to me, and then that wonderful too. No. Remember the Lord says there in the book of Revelation, you add one word to, or add one word, take one word away, may all the plagues of this book fall upon you. No. Let's understand that prophecy is not of anyone's private interpretation. It means the correct interpretation should mean the same to everybody worldwide. And if that's not happening, then we need to not be dogmatic. And so again, as we study through the Bible, a literal interpretation is how God has set it up. So even though some parts of the Bible are, pro, are, are poetic and so forth, which would not have a uh, a literal interpretation, well, it would once you understand the poetry. Or, for example, a hyperbole. Jesus says, lest you, uh, you know, it's better for you that you cut your hand off or pluck your eye out than to stumble one of the lead. Oh, there it is. A little translation means pluck your eye out. No. It's an obvious exaggeration to give an emotional response. So, what's the literal interpretation of a hyperbole? That this is serious business. You don't want to stumble a new brother. So uh, not that there would be a literal uh, cutting off of the hand, but a literal understanding of what it means. And in verse 21, 2 Peter 1, 21, for prophecy never came by the will of man, 
but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't of their origin. It wasn't John here saying, ah, this is what I want to tell you guys. No, 100% of it is from God using man to write it down. But it has an understanding that comes from God. So how do we need to handle it? I, I love the way Mary, the mother of Jesus according to the flesh, handled things about Jesus she didn't understand. I mean, she gave birth as a virgin. And here, what's it mean about this child? It, it just was mind-boggling. But here's what it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 19. Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And also, not just of Mary, but of others, the same idea in Luke one sixty six. All those who heard them kept them in their heart, saying, what kind of child will this be? And this is at the prophecy of Simeon, who basically said, this is the Messiah. In Luke 2.51, again about Mary, it says, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them, and his mother kept all these things in her heart. Jesus said, I I thought you would know. I'd be about my father's business. She spoke to Mary and Joseph. So, and as we look at these types of verses, we just need to study them, know them, and ponder them in our heart, and just watch until the sun starts dawning and shining in that dark place, right? So if, you, if there was no light, there's certain times of the year uh, the sun would move and shine through a window and maybe hit a corner of the barn or something that, that didn't typically get light except for a few months out of the year. This is what it's essence saying. When it's the right time, God's gonna shine. And we already have this in our hearts. We pondered this in our hearts. Okay, there's, there's uh, seven heads and seven mountains and seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, the other is not yet. And when he comes, he will continue a short time. The beast that was is not. Himself also is the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. So let's just put that in our hearts until God reveals it. And you know, it may very well be that this information is not important to us at all but uh, before the tribulation, but it's very important for those in the tribulation period. Well, back in chapter 17, verse 12 here, moving forward. Then the 10 horns which you saw are 10 kings, there it is again, very clear, who have received no kingdom as yet, but they received authority for one hour as kings with the beast. So one hour, what's that mean? It's probably a, just saying, ah, oh, just for a second, or just a minute, just a day, just for a little bit. So I don't think it's some literal thing. Some people try to say 60 days, 60 months, 60 uh, years or whatever. Um, can't work because it's a seven-year tribulation period. So what's it mean? I, it just means for a short time. So you're the king of the world for a short time. And this is what we're gonna get the idea of here. And in verse 13, these are the one mind and they will give their power and their authority to the beast. So they come together, they're of one mind spiritually, they're just linked uh, with the same goal, with the same plan. They all have the same ambitious heart to accomplish this thing. And they are submitted completely to whatever the beast desires. Uh, that's, that's a powerful force. 
These will make war with the lamb. So this verse here is like a little, sort of a little note. You sort of get depressed, you know. It's like, oh, there's this woman abomination. You sort of start getting grossed out. And it's sort of like the Lord says, hey, let me just give you a piece of gum to chew on here. Get the bad taste out of your mouth. They'll make war with the lamb ultimately. We know at the very end of the tribulation period. The lamb will what? Overcome them. For he is the Lord. Of lords, king of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. That's us, guys. There it is. So if you would, it's just sort of like, by the way, these guys are all unified to accomplish this thing and conquer the world, and they are going to have some tremendous success for a time, but ultimately, they're going to be destroyed by this little tiny lamb. But uh, this lamb is the king of kings and lord of lords going to take them out, this great, powerful force of the world. And in verse 15, then he said to me, the waters which you saw where are the harlot sits are the people's multitudes, nations, and tongues. So if you would, the Tower of Babel, this Nimrod who was a mighty hunter against the Lord gathered everybody together of one mind, of one plan, and they were gonna succeed if God didn't stop it. So now we know that Satan once again is getting all the peoples of the world of one mind, of one power to to. to conquer the world. And uh, hey, I had success before, Satan might say. I'll have success again. And uh, and in verse 16, and the ten horns which you saw of the beast, these these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. So it's sort of like, hey, note by the way, (laughs) the beast is getting everybody together, and right at this point, this woman, Babylon, this spirit of wickedness is controlling the beast, which again is the religious aspect of the Antichrist. And by the way, these other 10 kingdoms that all seem to be of one mind, they hate her. They hate her. And as soon as they can, they are going to rebel and destroy this religious system. So they're acting all of one mind. They're all acting submitted to the beast. But in reality, so let's stop here and think about this a minute. Satan is doing all that he is doing for gold and silver? No. A matter of fact, in Daniel 11, Antiochus of Epiphanes, when he was controlling Israel. He actually became completely poor himself during that time because he took all the money and gave it to all the people militarily, a bunch of mercenaries and generals, so they would fight for him. So he would have this ultimate power between Syria and Egypt. And he didn't care about the money because he wanted the religious system. What does Satan ultimately want? What's the whole thing about the economics? What is the whole thing about the military? It's all about the religion. It's all about the world being unified to worship him and no one else. But these kings, 
They could care less about the religion. They're going through the motions. Remember it says again in Thessalonians, he's gonna come and peace, peace, and everybody says peace, peace. There is no peace. And he is himself deceived. Satan believes, oh, these kings love me. Oh, the people of the world just love worshiping me and love singing to me. And oh, they just, they just think I'm the greatest thing ever. They hate him. They can't stand him. Interesting, a little note there. And as soon as they can, they are gonna take a hold of this spirit of Babylon, the spirit of this age, which is worshiping Satan, and they are gonna rip it to pieces and burn it in fire. Now, in verse 17, God has put into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be one mind, to give their kingdoms to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. By the way, guys, everything's in God's timing. We talked about this last week. There's a God of all power and all love. Why doesn't he stop evil now? He is going to stop it in his timing. God makes all things beautiful in his time. He hates evil. He is a God of all power and all love. He is going to stop it. But yet, until all things are fulfilled that are supposed to happen in God's desire, he's God. Interesting, in Proverbs 21.1, a great proverb to remember, guys, especially if you get discouraged about politics. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. So, ultimately, God is in power. And even though he allows the free will of angels and the free will of man to run its course for a time. And why he doesn't stop it sooner, I don't know, but God knows. Ultimately, God is in control. Listen to verse 17 again. For God has put it into their hearts, these kings, like the river, he turns it whichever way he wants, to fulfill what? His purpose to be of one mind, to give their kingdoms to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And in verse 18, and the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now, chapter 18, we basically just read and hang in there. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. Now we saw last week this other angel coming and preaching to the whole world the gospel. But now here's even a greater angel and illuminating the world with glory in the midst of incredible darkness. It is, oh, no man's gonna have an excuse before God on the day of judgment. God's Holy Spirit is in the world right now. John 16 tells us, convicting every man of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. God, right now, his Holy Spirit's knocking on the door of everyone's heart saying, let me come in. You're a sinner. God has anointed evangelists throughout the world in the tribulation period, 144, a mighty Jewish evangelist 
Two prophet guys that the whole world sees every single day right from Jerusalem. This angel flying around the world, everybody can see him preaching the gospel. And now here at the very end of the tribulation period where darkness is filling the world, wickedness, uh, it's like the very tower of Babylon, it's like the city of Babylon, but the whole world is infiltrated with this unbelievable wickedness. And this wickedness is great success. It's hard to argue with success. But yet, he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, has become a dwelling place of what? Demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean, hated bird. We saw in Zechariah 5 that wickedness and a basket with the lid on until the time came. In chapter 9, remember, God unleashed from the pit these demons that went throughout the world destroying. So evidently, somewhere there, spiritually, this is a speculation of my part, but in the spiritual realm, there is a door to the abyss right there in the Babylon area. And we see there now that Right there in this city of Babylon, it's the very dwelling place, it's the prison, it's the cage where all the foul, demonic spirits of the world live anyway. And it's like the city was built right on top of that. And in verse three, all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants, this is important because chapter 18 is about the economic, uh, demonic, (laughs) Antichrist system. So the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, what? Come out of her, my people. Amazing, isn't it? The light of the Lord with his glorious angel in the midst of such filth and corruption. And then another angel speaking from the very heart of God Come unto me. I'm sure there's more to that. Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden. Come unto me, I love you. I sent my son to die for all your sins. Even now, you rejected me, ended up in the tribulation period. Come to me right now, and I'll write your name in the book of life. God is amazing in salvation and grace and mercy. Come out of her, my people lest you share in her sins, lest you receive her plagues. Now, I just want to make a note here. This plea did not come in the religious Babylon of chapter 17 because they're already gone. They've already taken the mark of the beast. They're too far gone. Hebrews 6 tells us there's a point of no return. Here now, though, in the lust of money, there's still a chance. The Bible tells us it's easier for a camel to get through an eye on a needle than a rich man to get to heaven. Remember the rich man went away sad when Jesus said, sell all you have, give to the poor. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 6 that the root of all evil is what? The love, not money itself, but the love of money. It's been gripped. It says in in 1 Timothy 6, you should read that tonight. It says that many Christians, believers, 
have lost their faith, have been pierced through with many sorrows and drowned in many hurtful lusts because they're trying to get more. Not that they succeeded, but they tried. The Bible says godliness with what? Contentment is true riches. I believe it was Rockefeller who said, the richest man on earth is the man who needs nothing else. Who wants nothing else, excuse me. He wants nothing else. But boy, the world sets it up that you don't have enough, huh? No matter how much you have, you don't have enough. And in verse four, and I heard another voice, there it is, and, and, and come, to, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. Make a note, because this is the same thing God said about Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know what's interesting? Is in Ezekiel chapter 16, describes the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know what they were? It's because they were so wealthy. It wasn't about their immorality. Their homosexuality became an abomination. It was the bottom of the list. It's something that manifested, it was a fruit that manifested on the tree because of their wealth, their ease of life, and they were so consumed with their luxury that made them evil. Interesting, isn't it? And so your abominable nations, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, has reached to heavens and render to her just as she rendered to you. Repay her double according to her works and the cup with which she was mixed, mixed double her. The way you've been judged, the way you're gonna be judged. And the measure of, of that, she glorified herself and lived luxuriously. And the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I said as queen, and I am no widow and will see no sorrow. It's amazing how people can lie to themselves and believe their own lie. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire for strong is the Lord God who judges her. Guys, remember that line, the very end of verse eight? Strong is the Lord God who judges her, or just who judges. Our God is a God of salvation, but he's also a God of justice. And to have justice, you have to have judgment, a punishment that equals a crime. We covered that last week. And in verse nine, the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously, luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold, of silver, of precious stones, of pearls, of fine linen, of purple, of silk, of scarlet, of every kind of citron wood, of every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of precious wood and bronze and iron and marble and the cinnamon and the incense and the fragrance oil and the frankincense and wine and oil, fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and horses and uh, chariots and bodies and the souls of men. Look at this, so corrupt. The people of the earth are watching God destroy the city. 
They don't care about judgment. Remember we keep saying this? God's judging them. They don't fear God. They don't repent. They mock God. They curse God. And they're looking at this wicked, putrid place that's evil, incarnate, in the city. And they're going, oh, purple. I'm not gonna have purple anymore. What about gold? And what's the very last thing on their list? Oh, people. I'm gonna really miss my pearls. Oh yeah, I might miss somebody too. I might miss my wife, maybe, I don't know. I might miss my kids, but I'm really gonna miss gold. Oh, that's what I'm really upset about. Weird, isn't it? Materialism is weird. The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, and all things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who become rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, and saying, alas, alas, that great city that clothed in fine linen, purple, scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for one hour such great riches came to nothing. What you find is this. All these kingdoms were promised power, wealth, and they got it for one hour. (laughs) What will a man give in exchange for his soul? They never really got it, guys. They never really got their power. They really never got their money. As soon as it looked like they were finally gonna be able to get it and enjoy it, it's gone. Empty is this world, isn't it? And notice verse 17, every shipmaster of all travel by ship, sailors and as many as trade on the sea stood at a distance. So uh, this is again an interesting point because Iraq is landlocked. Babylon didn't have a seaport, but here it does. And they cried out when they saw the smoke of a burning saying, what is it like this great city? They threw dust on their heads and cried out weeping and wailing and saying, alas, alas, the great city in which all who have ships on the sea became rich of her wealth for in one hour she is made desolate. Now, verse 20, those in heaven, let's hear how upset they are about this. Rejoice over her, O heavens, and you holy apostles and prophets for God has avenged you on her. Notice in verse 11, The merchants of the what? Earth are what? Weeping and mourning. But now look at verse 20. Rejoice over her, O who? Heavens. Jesus says, guys, store up your treasure in what? Heaven. Where it's not stolen or rust or destroyed. These guys in heaven are rejoicing. I don't care. It's all gonna burn. God told me that. Naked we came into this world and what? Naked we're going out. We brought nothing in this world and we're breaking nothing out. Jesus says, store up your treasure in heaven. It's a command and he made it sound important. And here we see the people now thinking they could hang on to it forever on earth. And at best, a lifetime, 100 years, it's gonna seem but a second. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? But those in heaven are rejoicing. I'm glad to see that putrid city with all that putrid gold and silver, all that gaudy, ugly stuff. I'm glad to see it gone, burned. Then the the mighty angel took up a stone with a great millstone 
threw it into the sea, saying, thus with a violence in great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall be found anymore. So it's like a giant tidal wave, maybe a mud or something, just covered it and it's just gone. Even the location of where it was, it's just gone. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, uh, trumpeters shall not be heard of you anymore. No craftsman of the craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of the millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. The light of the lamp shall not shine in you anymore. The voice of bridegroom and the bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. For by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who were slain on the earth. So the greatest, most magnificent, most richest, glorious city that will ever exist will become wickedness in and of itself. And then God will cover it with his giant wave and it will never be heard of again. And of course, at the end of millennial reign, we're gonna get to that. Everything's gonna melt with the fervent heat. I wanna close with this verse here tonight. In... um, One second here. (laughs) Try to be smooth and get it all together. Okay, here it is. Um, James chapter four, verse one through four. It says this. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come for your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers, adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In 1 John chapter 2, Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. For anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world is passing away, the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. I want to say that again. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Little children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Well, Lord, we come before you right now and we know the spirit of the Antichrist is in the world, making boasts, making blasphemies, making claims. We know that the doctrines of demons in the last days are gonna try to draw men away from faith. It says some will depart from the faith, giving heed to those doctrines of demons. We know, Lord, that part of it's gonna be the desire for success, and we see that the Antichrist and those who follow him are successful. They have all the things of this world. Lord, we know that this world is passing away and we know that if we have a love for the things of this world, the love of the Father can't abide in us. 
And right now we know that Satan is out to kill, still and destroy. He's putting all kinds of weeds around us, trying to get the love of this world, the love of the, the flesh, the desire for other things, the desire for riches to choke out the love for you and the love for righteousness that we wouldn't bear fruit and even shrivel up and die. And we just come before you right now and just ask as we sense it, we sense the spirit of this age, we sense that, that spirit of Babylon calling our name and trying to get us to go to the, the luxury of it and to, to run after it. Whether it's the sexuality of it or the wealth of it or the pride of it or just the desire not to want to have to submit to God and just do our own thing. Please, Lord, let the word of God tonight cleanse us and wash us and heal us. If you're here tonight, just right now, don't let this moment pass. Don't say, I'll think about it later. The Bible says, if this is you, fall upon the rock and be broken. Don't wait till that rock falls upon you and crush you to powder. It's you right now. Lord, just search my heart. See if there be any wicked way. Or maybe you're saying, I know there's a wicked way. Cleanse me, Lord. Heal me, God. Lead me in the way of everlasting life. Not in this temporal way, but in in eternal things, Lord. Cleanse me. Wash me. Purify me. I submit myself to you anew and afresh tonight, Lord. Right now. Forgive me, Lord. Cleanse me, Lord. Heal me, Lord. Give me salve for my eyes. Give me clothes that I'm not naked anymore. I open the door of my heart. Come in. Take the throne of my heart. Be the Lord of my life. I submit myself to you. In Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, amen, amen. God bless you. If you need prayer, come forward. There's myself and others. I'd love to pray with you. Have a wonderful evening. Bye-bye.